Hello, everybody. This is your Dead Punnets for this week. I'm going to be introducing my guest here in just a couple of moments. We've got Micah Utrecht coming on the program. He is the deputy editor at Jacobin Magazine, of course. He's been on the show before. You guys know him. He wrote a piece for The Nation magazine a couple of weeks ago about the works of Mike Davis. Mike Davis, of course, is a socialist author and activist. He's been on the left for a very long time. But don't get discouraged by the fact that this episode is about another dusty old socialist. And no disrespect to Mike or any of the old dusty socialists that I talk about on the reg on DPS. Uh, but this is, you know, Mike and I talk about Mike Davis's work, sure, but in context of some of the most important controversies and riffs on the left. It's a fun episode, y'all. Don't skip over this one thinking that it's just another dusty interview about another dusty old leftist. Uh, Mike and I have a great deal of fun, so I know you guys are going to enjoy this one. It goes long, so uh, batten down the hatches. Buckle up. Gird your loins, if you will. So let's get right to it. This episode, as all others that I've ever put out in the last four years, is brought to you by our patrons. I am literally literal when I say, as Gen Z might put it, that this show cannot function without the generosity of our patrons. And so if you enjoy this program, if you think it's important, if you want to support the project of socialist political education, I implore you to head to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. The link, of course, is in the show notes. As always, we cannot function without the generous support and solidarity from listeners like you. Uh, we don't have any kind of institutional ties. We don't have advertisers. The show is free to listen to, but it is not free to make. So in order to continue this project, we need your support. So thanks, everybody. Patrons past and present. we got a long road ahead of us. You know, sometimes it's, it's better than other times to be a socialist. We're going to talk today on uh, this interview with this program you're about to listen to about the trials and tribulations of a lifetime on the left. We have to prepare for a lifetime on the left. It's not always going to be, you know, puppy dogs and rainbows, but we do have to be here for the long haul. And uh, it's the supporters on Patreon and listeners like you who make that possible. So again, patreon.com slash dead pundits. Enjoy the show. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundits Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and joining me on the microphone today is a familiar voice, not only because he's been on the show before, but because he has uh, a familiar voice. Uh, one of the few guests I've had on who can uh, rival me in uh, radio podcast announcer voice quality in timber. Mikey Utrecht, how you doing? Doing very well. Thanks for having me. In case folks didn't know, you are still the deputy editor at Jacobin Magazine. You are the co-author of a book that's going to be updated and re-released here in the, in the coming months called Bigger Than Bernie with our friend Megan Day. A book which we always have to remember was announced on this podcast. It was. It was announced anywhere else. We broke the news on this podcast. First. I don't get a lot of exclusive. I've forgotten about that. I appreciate that. I don't get a lot of ex exclusive scoops, but uh, here it is. You're also working on a project with your friend and former advisor, Barry Eidlin. It's an oral history project of uh, folks in the industrial labor movement who organized their workplaces in the 1970s. Is that right? Tell us about that. 
Yeah, it's a book of oral histories of uh, new leftists, radicals, who turned to industry, as they put it, who got jobs in places like steel and auto with the intention of organizing as rank-and-file workers and created a bunch of institutions that hopefully your listeners are aware of, like Teamsters for Democratic Union and Labor Notes and, you know, did a bunch of stuff, some failures, mostly failures probably, but some successes. And this is a time in this newly reborn American socialist movement where many socialists are trying to figure out what they should be doing and how they should be interacting with the labor movement. And so I thought it was important to collect the stories of people who did this you know, a couple of generations ago during the last period of left upsurge, especially at a time when folks are frankly getting very old and some of the people who did that are dying and nobody's ever really sat down and collected their histories. So that'll be out sometime probably late next year from Verso. Yeah, that's going to be an important project. My man Studs Terkel, you, you have a, quite a story about Studs Terkel yourself. He was a an historian who collected oral histories uh, from the labor movement from the t- early 20th century and beyond, and uh, that stuff is invaluable. And you're right, man. I mean, it sucks. You know, I'm just coming off the end of my Leo Panitz tribute series, you know, four-episode banger. You guys don't miss uh, Adam Hilton last week talking about the Democratic Party and all the rest of it. But, you know, that man had some serious resonances across the left. I know he did with Jacobin. Um some words about Leo before we get uh, start, you know, talk on, about uh, Turkle and, and some of these other other folks. Uh, well, for me, first to speak on Turkle, I mean, Turkle is a huge inspiration for me uh, for, for multiple reasons. I mean, for his sort of like spirit that he carried in his work, you know, he didn't take himself particularly seriously. He was somebody who what he did with his life was not say I'm Studs Terkel, check out what I have to say about the world. He used this ability that he had to listen to people and to talk to people and allowed that to like bring other people's voices to the farm. I mean, literally, that's what every single Studs Terkel book is, right? And, you know, we're, we're here to talk about an essay that I wrote that has my name attached to it. But frankly, that's not where I feel most comfortable. I feel far more comfortable, uh, whether it's editing somebody's work to try to help them say what they want to say in the best and, and most compelling way possible with this, this oral history book. Uh, I mean, obviously, that's like a Turkelian collection, letting other people literally speak on the page. You know, reading him at a young age was really, really inspiring for me. And I also had this moment, the very first Studs Circle book I read was Working by Studs Circle, obviously the classic about work in America, one of the best books ever written about work in America. And it was 2008. And I, I live in Chicago. And I went to this used bookstore, Myopic, and I picked up a paperback copy, a shitty paperback copy of this book Working. And I started reading it. And the weeks before I went as a young I was on my way out of my teenage anarchism and I was about to get the final nail in the coffin of my anarchism when I went to Minneapolis for the 2008 Republican National Convention and did some did some stuff there. <laughs> it was the end, as I said, it was the end of my anarchism. Um, Keep it off the record. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> statute, I don't know if the statute of limitations is, uh, is up on that yet. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a, a felony riot arrest from that that, uh, <laughs> that almost prevented me from go, being able to go to grad school in Canada. But I got, I got arrested and I went to jail for two days. And it might get innocent, just for the record, just so we're clear. I, I, it, was, it was fake news. It was the charges were bogus. But for some reason, I'm in jail and we have a book cart in our cell block. I don't know why. We were the only cell block in a book cart. And I'm looking at the book cart and it's mostly like kids books. It's like, you know, like YA fiction, you know. But then for mm. so, somehow, through some miracle, there's a fucking copy of Working by Studs Terkel on this book cart. So, of course, I grabbed this book cart and... 
in Minneapolis, the jail is the Ramsey County Jail. And so I open up the book and somebody has written in pencil on the first page of the book, I would rather work every shitty job in this book than spend a single day in Ramsey County. (laughs) (laughs) So I spent my 48 hours in jail just reading Working by Studs Terkel. And uh, it it clearly had a really uh, important effect. I mean, it's kind of funny now that I've come full circle 13 years later, I'm doing a kind of uh, updated version of Working. You're basically Shadow Moon, and uh, uh, a.k.a. the All-Father, a.k.a. Wednesday from the hit star series, American Gods. Place that book on uh, your card. Have you seen American Gods, no, Mike, never before have. I go? You've ne- oh, it's so good. It's so good. I'm not sure how it stands. Like, I don't know. I don't know if any socialists, like, critics who are, like, far more culturally, you know, like, um, have better taste and, you know, better <laughs> discernment and all the rest of it than my hillbilly ass. And they've probably uh, deemed it insufficiently socialist in some way, shape, or form. It's probably, like, really offensive. I don't know. I probably just, like, outed myself and I'm going to be canceled in a few months. But great, great series. Point being is that you were destined to pick up that book. It's funny how those little moments happen. And, you know, these, these, they, they change your life. So, uh, yeah, come back. We're going to talk about that. Um, yeah. Turkellian treatment of the 1970s generation. It is so important because these people are dying, man. And yeah. we're going to talk about your essay on Mike Davis. Hopefully he's got some some decades. <laughs> don't want to pronounce that man yeah. dead long before his time. But we just lost Leo Panich, someone from that uh, generation. You know, and um, it's heavy when people like us who, I mean, I don't know about you, but I still consider myself to be like very young. You know, on, <laughs> I'm not, right? I, I consider myself. I have a funny story. I, I was talking to my mother. Uh, like last year, about this time last year, maybe two, maybe two years ago, and I was like, "Well, you know, mom, like I was talking about something." I was like, "Well, I'm, I mean, I'm young," and she just said, "No, you're not." <laughs> I was like, "No, I'm, I'm young," and she's like, "Adam, you're not young at all." <laughs> oh, oh, damn, mom! Oh. And I love my mother to death, but she wasn't wrong. Oh, she, I was like, mom "Fucking brings the real in my early thirties, yeah. right?" I was in my early. She was like, "I had kids, yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, grown yeah. kids." <laughs> At your age, I'd been married for a decade. You know, I was on my like sixth job, right? And, and, I, and she's like, "You're not young at all." And it was like this, like it was like a slap in the face. It hurt a little bit, but I was like, "Damn, she's not wrong, though. She's not wrong." There's something about our generation where, like, we feel like no matter how old we're going to get, we're always going to feel like young, right? Mm-hmm. Like the kind of like uh, the the lost generation of the millennials that we're a part of. But anyway, like we, I, I don't. Do you feel young on the left? You feel like you're just like you know a spring chicken in some ways. Well, hmm. it depends on the on, on the day. I mean, I, I, I yeah, consider myself yeah. young, but then you know, I've been uh, developing relationships with these like Zoomer DSA members. And right, talking, true. I was going to say it depends on talking to them. We never get older; it's just people get younger. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good way. To talk about. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, and so yeah. if if you're in if you're in direct contact with the Zoomers and and YDSA, then I could totally see how like you'd start to feel that. But they don't make me feel old. I mean, like because the old person thing to do is to wag your finger at the younger generation, <laughs> right? But these kids are fucking incredible. The, these kids they're are smart. like uh, on fire for socialism. You know, they're doing weird TikToks and shit that I don't understand. But like, they're also <laughs> reading fucking. Leo Panitch and I'm just like yeah. like I'm like hey yeah. you should read Panitch and then they actually read Panitch I'm like what the fuck you actually did what I said that's crazy so yeah. I 
They, I don't know if that makes me feel old or young. It just makes me feel good about the younger generation. Yeah, no doubt. They're definitely uh, like leaps and bounds ahead of us in some yeah. ways, which is like, thank God for that. Yes. I don't know how we started talking about this at all, but like, <laughs> I do think there's something to be said about kind of like the post Bernie moment. And uh, I actually tricked you. All pre- the pretense was I was going to get you to come on here to talk about your new essay in the Nation magazine about Mike Davis's work. But in reality, I wanted to uh, force you to account and explain for Jacobin's latest publishing of a piece on Slimer and Gordon Gecko. <laughs> <laughs> what is there to explain, man? It's pretty, it's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> so for the listeners out there who are like woefully ignorant on this, you guys need to know about this. Uh, our, our friend Danny Bessner on the show, actually all three of these people have been on DPS a couple of times. Bessner, Amber Frost, and Matt Chrisman wrote a banger of a cultural criticism on the latest uh, reboot of Ghostbusters, which, by the way, I haven't—I don't know—I know nothing about. No, me either. I didn't know anything about Muncher. So, our, our beloved Slimer, the beloved of the '90s kids, that yeah. is. I mean, how could you be a '90s kid if you didn't grow up a Slimer? E- high C ecto cooler? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, what else would you? I would have. I would have died of dehydration <laughs> in the summertime <laughs> if it wasn't for ecto cooler, man. How about you? Were you an ecto cooler guy? I, I definitely have very vivid memories of the of the yellow box with with Slimer on it. Of course, that's that was yeah. the it was the air yeah. we breathed. So, what's the conceit of this 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 piece? Uh, Slimer represents the kind of um, over the top uh, Gordon Gecko greed is good Coke fueled uh, uh, Reagan eighties, right? And Muncher, the new uh, it was apparently that I, I know everything I know about Muncher came from this like. By the way, I'm pretty sure Coke and I don't want to besmirch these. This essay is wildly weird, but it's amazing <laughs> at the same time. Everything I know about Muncher comes from the essay. Do you know? Do you know anything about Muncher? No, I didn't know anything about Muncher. I just I, apparently he's like, you know, he's like uh, taking Zans and listening to emo rap or something. <laughs> so yeah, so he's he's listening to like mumble emo yeah. rappers. And I think Zoloft was the word that they were using. He's, yeah. he's doing his like whatever ghost apparition thing, just like headphones on, like push me to the edge. All my friends are dead. Push me to the edge. <laughs> <laughs> they bust in the bathroom. They find him making like TikToks about how sad he is. Yeah. It's, no, no, I don't know that to be true. But anyway, so it represents the, the cultural uh, kind of our cultural age our cultural era yeah and it's right? not a it's Compared. not a good portrait of sort of like how, where how we're all just uh depressed doing. i mean it's like <laughs> how we're doing you know it's like cat like capitalism continues apace you know the the uh capital is just you know socking it all in their in their uh in their pocket and they're making all, all kinds of crazy money and uh but like you know, with inequality widening and with it just so obvious that the, the the spoils of our economic system not reaching the majority of us, we can't even pretend like Gordon Gecko was about like you, the average, you know, schmo, you like you can share in this feeling of, of sort of hedonism, like you're not actually making money like him, but like the cultural what the efflorescence of uh, of, of that is sort of like reflecting on you. But now we're not nobody's even pretending that anymore. Nobody is. But nobody's pretending to have a good time anymore. And uh, that's what Muncher is a reflection of. It's just like we're getting kind of honest about how fucking sad and depressed we all are. But I I, I tweeted uh, the other day in in love and jest about how deeply weird the post-Bernie kind of – discursive universe is becoming but i do think there's like some there's some truth to that right like i think like all of us are feeling a little bit of like weird post bernie i don't want to call it burnout but it's almost kind of like um 
it's like that dopamine lack that you have, like after you've been like dropping Molly all weekend. I, I, he says like that, he, like he's done this, like he's cool. You know, the podcast host says like he's like you know like attended a bunch of raves in his life and like knows all about this. But apparently, right, like the the inertia driven by the Bernie Sanders moment, I think, has whipped us into a post Bernie frenzy that's like actually really destructive. And you can see a lot of people like chasing that high, trying to to like. To fill that dopamine, you know, that dopamine uh, yeah. lack in the post-Bernie moment, you know, look at look at like force the vote and, you know, without taking any positions on that whatsoever, you know, there's just a lot of things that have kind of come and gone that probably don't deserve, at least in my estimation, the, like the, the kind of like hot air and urgency. The vibe like, is wrong. The vibe is the just vibe wrong. Is wrong. Yeah. Like whatever you want to say about the specific political question, people are like whipping the vibe into something that the vibe should not be. Yeah. But we're just two millennials trying to trying to be relevant to, to culturally to Gen Z at this point. But, time, right? I mean, I'm having how's your middle part in your how's your middle part in your baggy jeans? Coming along? <laughs> I refuse. I refuse <laughs> to go. I refuse to go back to the baggy jean era. The, the, yeah, I love the Zoomers, but they are not going to drag my skinny jeans away from me. I'm sorry. No. I'm going to. You I'll can, be take, you can pry my skinny jeans out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> That's something I got from Leo Panitch, baby. I'm going to stick to these skinny <laughs> jeans because that motherfucker was always wearing skinny jeans. Right. Um, no, but Pete, you're you're totally right, and it's because. For the first time in our lives, a year ago, like literally a year ago right now, we were just like, we, we thought, we allowed ourselves to believe after a lifetime of thinking that there was like basically no political openings for anything decent in the world. We just resigned ourselves to uh, living in a world of shit for the rest of our lives. We're like, oh my God, this motherfucker actually could become the uh, president of the United States. A socialist could be in the White House. And so we... Those of us who were smart uh, threw ourselves into that effort at, like nothing else that any of us have ever done in our lives. And, you know, we, we had our hearts broken, which was always the most likely outcome. But like, whatever, right. we saw the opportunity and we threw ourselves at it. And we we found new pieces of ourselves to throw into it that we didn't even know existed before. We pushed ourselves. And that was the, I, I'm sure I speak for maybe you, maybe many of the listeners when I say that like that was one of the highlights of my life was that period, that feeling of totally. being alive, of on fire, of considering the possibilities of what the world could look like. It, it's just like nothing I've ever experienced. And so of, of course it makes sense. I want to go back to that because like, think about where we are a year later. Like <laughs> yeah, this shit yeah. sucks, man. I, I feel like Muncher right now. You know? I, I, <laughs> I feel terrible. I don't know about you, like most people, but like, I know, I, I mean, you know, I, I, I got the tattoo across my stomach to prove it, Micah, no regrets, uh, <laughs> no regrets here whatsoever about going all in for the Bernie moment. Yeah. But what you are seeing now and damn it, we didn't, the episode was not supposed to be about this, but we could make several about it. Right. That like, the, the left going forward is just going to be a series of like pathologies, <laughs> like grounded in like the post Bernie experience, like whether or not, you know, you sort of like dive into like a more ultra left kind of direction with your politics and try to, you know, recede from you're seeing this, right? People sort of jumping back into like third partyism and kind of like rejecting any any interaction with the Democratic Party altogether this is the kind of like, you know, fool me once, shame, you know, that kind of like, uh, there's a lot of like, so I think a lot of this comes from like self-flagellation, doesn't it? Like yeah. people who just won't be fooled again, 
you know, and, and that's dangerous. And I think like, you know, I don't know, like after the, the Monday and Tuesday, after you binge on Molly all weekend or whatever the fuck, you know, whatever the case may be like, and you feel like shit, you know, you, you're still going to feel like shit, but you should probably just know that it's like a lack of serotonin in your brain right. from like, right going ham on Molly all weekend, right? <laughs> like, like, and at least like, if you feel like shit, you should like, you know, be able to sort of recognize that, do some thought work as the self-help gurus say, and think to yourself, yes, I am demoralized. Yes, it is a hard time to be on the left right now. Yes, and it's because of this. Don't just assume that, oh, no, 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 this all has to mean something. I have right. to connect all of these dots in this kind of like Glenn Beck back to the chalkboard <laughs> moment in 2008, yeah. right? And therefore, the left is bullshit and everybody yeah, yeah, else yeah. is grifters yeah. and- and, and, and it's so like that's what we're seeing right now, man. It's so um, it's like it's, you know to, it's to continue with metaphors. It's like when you when you're in love and you get your heart broken and you're like you are like well fuck fuck I'm never doing that again because yeah, it's, like, right. it's like no it was good to be in love it was good to throw yourself right. into that that because you had your heart broken doesn't mean like therefore fuck the project of romance uh, and in fact you like learned a lot out of it. You got a lot out of it. You, you learned a lot about yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And we can't be tempted to like, like I see people mo- moving back to the old instincts. Like they allowed themselves yeah. to be vulnerable with the Bernie campaign, allowed themselves yeah. to believe that a better world was possible and the, the project lost. And so they're like, okay, well, never mind. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to actually believing that the world is not possible. Uh, a better world is not possible. And that's the wrong way to go about this shit. Like it, it's tempting to, to, to take your mind that, that way, but it's really destructive. And it's certainly not going to bring about the better world that we still should believe is possible to win. Not at all. You know, I mean, it's 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 no different than like the divorced dads like heading to like, you know, online forums or whatever. And then deciding that like men's rights is like the way to go. Right. Like because they're like, you know, they're, you know, pardon the phrase, but their bitch ex-wife, you know, uh, like took the kids and, and stole their manhood and all the rest of it. Right. Like. It's that reaction. It's the same. It's the same thing. Yeah. Right? You know, and, and so we need to fight it. And God damn it. I find myself in DPS, just as a little personal story, I find myself really trapped in the middle of it, like right in the fucking thick of it. Cause like everybody knows, like this isn't a secret. DPS like, right, was the epicenter of like some of the critical postures about the left that caused a shit storm, like, you know, three, four years ago. And some of those people have, I think, gone in the direction like I've tried to go, which is like a principled engagement with this stuff and sort of trying to win kind of more like class oriented with like more like having a more nuanced uh, socialist approach to oppression, not pretending like it doesn't exist or it's not important. And then other people have gone that way. They have gone this sort of like, well, I don't know, maybe Josh Hawley's on to something. Yeah. Like, like, what the fuck? You know, like this is this was not ever supposed to be, you know, or I don't know. Maybe uh, you know, immigration is like a, a waste of our like, you know, immigration shouldn't be something that we should give a fuck about. You know, like maybe, what? Yeah. Maybe they are stealing yeah. our jobs. Like, right. Maybe they're taking our jobs though, right? Like, what the fuck? How did we get here? And, and, and anyway, you know, it's just, man, there's just a lot going to be, I think the future of the left going forward is, like I said, it's going to be a series of like post-burning pathologies. And as long as you recognize that and don't take it too seriously, uh, I don't know. Man. Well, and not to get too down uh, here, like, yes, yeah. these pathologies are popping up, but people should remember that this is not in the main what the American left is doing at this point. I mean, I still totally. feel like, Despite the, the the popping up of of, the, of these kind of crazy and, and useless uh, exercises, the majority of people who are now on this new American left have a pretty good head on their shoulders and are not losing their minds. They're they're trying to be dedicated to this project for the long haul, 
Um, and, and we shouldn't feel, we shouldn't let the, the, the pathologies that are popping up shade too much, you know, cloud our, our, our analysis, our understanding of where this new left is at these days. Cause actually, uh, despite everything that I, I feel pretty hopeful about this new left. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, like I said, but I, I get a little down on the dumps about it because of how, like I said, DPS in some ways has been at the epicenter of all of these things. And so it sort of impacts me a little bit more starkly, harshly than others, perhaps. But damn it. And I'm on TikTok. I'm not afraid to say it. It's hilarious. And these kids, what they're doing, you know, this kind of very commonsensical approach to like, just like, you know, just owning the shit. I don't mean like owning the libs. I mean, just just wrecking like Ben Shapiro and all the rest of them. And just, you know, clowning these fools like they should have been clowned all along. It's it's brilliant. And and um, just entering into like the cultural like hegemony. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's it's, that's important. It's not everything. It's not everything. We got to we got to unionize folks. We got to got to build up the, the trade unions. We need democratic processes of deliberation among the working class. But damn it, cultural hegemony is like pretty sweet, too. Yeah, it's not nothing, you know. And so it's the question is how to how to how to how to think about. What is, you know, okay, so we just went through a hellacious four to five years on the left, right? How do we think about 40 to 50 years on the left? Because that's what it's going to take. And the guy that you wrote uh, an amazing essay about publishing the nation this past week has done it. So it'd probably be a nice little segue to jump into that piece. You wrote a, a piece that is long and it's uh, dense. And uh, I can't imagine the research that went into it. It's called Amid the Wildfires. Mike Davis's forecast for the left. It appeared in the nation on February 9th. Um, it'll be linked to in the show notes. Of course, people should read through it. I myself encountered Mike Davis's work as a plucky undergrad, like long before I decided like to, to embark on, you know, like, I don't know, being like, like a brainy member of the left planet of slums. And I was in a globalization course. And that book was, you know, talk about like, darkness, you know, un- uncovering the darkness of 20th and 21st century capitalism. His project is really important. What led you to to dive into a treatment of, of, of his work in such a way? Was it a book review kind of run amok? That's kind of what it seemed to me when I ran through it. it run amok <laughs> in the best way, right? Uh, because you're engaging with his uh, Old God's New Enigmas collection and another and you end up sort of narrating his entire life. Tell us about that. Well, the, the thing started because I was talking to, uh, I, I was thinking, I don't even remember why I was thinking about, about Mike Davis. I think it was because I had just read Planet of Slums for the first time last year. And one of those, one of those projects where you know you got to read Mike Davis at some point. And so I was finally getting around to doing it after uh, years ago. The first time I read Mike Davis was Prisoners of the American Dream after the Wisconsin, a friend of mine gave me a copy after the Wisconsin Capitol uprising and I, and I read it and it, it blew my mind. But I was like, more recently starting to go down this road again and I mentioned to uh, historian Gabriel Wanant that I was reading Davis and I was like, somebody, somebody needs to like, okay, this guy won't write a memoir. He refuses, apparently. People have begged him in print to write a memoir before and he just won't do it. He just drops these little hints about how like, oh yeah, that one time where I like was the only guy to vote against killing a strike breaker during a Teamster strike in Los Angeles. And you're just like, please give me more. I need more yeah. of this, please. Yeah. So Isn't that maddening? These guys in that generation, they like, I don't know, maybe I think that the, the, the 20s and 30s generation were almost like memoir crazy, right. like in a good way. But it's, it's, it's a lost art. People don't want to talk about themselves. Yes, which is why people like me have to do oral history collections of them because they fucking refuse to write a memoir. So uh, so I was like, I was t- just kind of shooting the shit with Gabriel and I was like, I uh, maybe I should like 
I should uh, do a book of interviews with Mike Davis. And, uh, you know, th- th- maybe that's the way to get these stories out of him. And he just sort of uh, apparently took this, you know, he spread the word on the street that I was thinking about doing such a thing. And so David Marcus, the uh, books and culture editor of, of The Nation, asked me to review these two books, uh, his most recent books. And, and yeah, I think he thought that I was going to just review the two books. But um, I was... I, Instead of a, a 15,000 word essay. Exactly. <laughs> I read 11 Mike Davis books. I spent a very big chunk of 2020 reading Mike Davis and thinking about Mike Davis and listening to his interviews and just sort of marinating in the guy, uh, which was nice. It was like, you know, it was a project that took me a couple months. It wasn't like doing a dissertation, but it also wasn't doing this sort of like one-off book review. I'm like, I'm going to figure this motherfucker out. So... I, Dude, late uh, yeah. Victorian Holocaust, like during the pandemic, like I used it to do like bicep curls. Like, is that, <laughs> is that, it's that kind of book, like when I didn't have any weight <laughs> handy or couldn't go to the gym. Well, you and know, I was like putting it on my back and doing like squats. It's funny like, you say books that. Are not, these books are not, I mean, even Global Slums is like, quote, short, but it's dense as fuck. That's so his how? prose how? is crazy. It's His prose how? is unlike anybody else's <laughs> prose. You like read one really? sentence and you're like, oh, I've, I gotta take a break. And uh, <laughs> also the physical book itself. It's funny uh, curling with the book because David Marcus took out a line that I initially had about um, Set the Night on Fire, his uh, 800 page uh, history of LA in the 60s where I, I was like talking about it and you know it's 800 pages long and it's a joy to read the pages fly by but multiple times as I was reading it my wrist started hurting because it's such a brick <laughs> of a book it's no shit you need a you need a sturdy table to set yeah. the book down on. like they're all hard covers too anyway yeah. so uh, so okay so you know it, it occurs to me that you know we're doing a lot of inside baseball discussion about Mike Davis's work let's let's peel back that's my fault I get excited about uh, heavy books that I can do squats with when I'm stuck in, indoors during a pandemic um, who was Mike Davis? Why was he important? Well, who is? Why is he different? We should remember. Who, who, sorry, who is? Who is? I, I'm thinking about you know, in terms of yeah. Let's not do that. Yeah, and, and as uh, I who? as I describe all this stuff, I should be clear that this will not be the final word on Mike Davis. I've heard that he's got multiple projects still uh, cooking right now, and I think including a big book about COVID. So uh, we're going to be hearing a lot more from this guy, hopefully, God willing. So he's important for a lot of reasons. He he really um he, he obviously generationally speaking he's uh, an enigma of a guy. He's, you know to take a line from him, the title was one of his recent collections. Uh, he's he's a unique individual who once told uh, Eugene Genovese to what fuck off uh, go fuck like, yourself note, go fuck yourself noted historian on uh, <laughs> the post reconstruction uh, era global capitalism of slavery and all the rest of it go fuck yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this—he's not a—he's not your average like you know politics and letters like uh, hoity-toity scholar, like not even like a Perry Anderson type of guy who like even Perry Anderson himself broke the mold in a lot of ways, you know. So, yeah, well, tell us about what's interesting about his trajectory and how he seems to be after a career of gloom and doom, right? Justifiable gloom and doom, by the way. Um, he seems to be a lot more optimistic these days. So Davis was a new leftist who was radicalized in California, Southern California, where he's from around a lot of the same things that many people of that generation were radicalized by the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam war movement. So he's from Southern California, from a working class family and got involved in, in the upsurges of the new left and was you know very intimately involved in students for a democratic society involved in all the all the important fights of of the day in the 1960s and then became one of these people who I'm interviewing for this next book collection of new leftists who got jobs uh and and organized I mean he worked as a 
a big rig truck driver. I think in one of his books, he says that he hauled around uh, Barbie dolls like all over uh, Southern California. Such a Mike. It's it only like I would only believe that something absurd of that could be true if Mike Davis is the one who's saying it because it's just like it's it's a perfect like imagining him this sort of like gruff and tough Mike Davis hauling around like a bunch of dolls uh, throughout Southern California is hilarious. Uh, but yeah, he's a truck driver. You know, worked uh, delivering meat for a while. And had this sort of uh, interesting trajectory going from a rank-and-file uh, union activist for several years into uh, becoming a writer, jo- you know, went to college late, uh, and through a series of events, which I describe in the piece, uh, fell in with the uh, New Left Review and Perry Anderson and started working for New Left Review. And into his 30s, launched this writing career, which became one of the most incredible writing careers of uh, the socialist left that I am aware of, uh, both in terms of his output in in books, in terms of the originality of the stuff he writes, in terms of his prose, which is mind-boggling to read. He, you know, you read one paragraph and you feel like you just read an entire book in the one paragraph. Uh, and then you read this footnotes and there's like other books in the footnotes. That's like each book contains like dozens of books within it. And, you know, he, his first book was about the state of the American labor movement. And he, you know, he checked it out and he found it pretty bleak the, in Reagan, you know, the height of the Reagan years in the mid eighties. And he, uh, that, that book sort of established his reputation as being an incredibly sober thinker about the state of the American left, which is different from what some people, including myself, uh, have, you know, done. Like we're constantly, because we understand that like, you know, just gloom and doom is not a particularly useful, it doesn't get people like excited to go try to make social change because it's like, what's the fucking point? So, uh, you know, you look for, you look for little sunbeams here and there that can be like, oh, well, maybe labor is about to turn a corner. Maybe this is about to change. Maybe we'll finally emerge from this dark period of, uh, you know, the the, the post-60s revanchism. And he's refused throughout his entire career to give any sense of, false hope, any false solace for the state that we are in as a society and as a world. And so he did that with Prisoners of the American Dream. And he, he that was this thread that goes through his entire career. But he moves in these directions that are fascinating. I mean, City of Courts is his most famous book, the book about Los Angeles, which if you read, you're like the, the synthesis that this guy does, that he brings together all of these different strands uh, about what's going on in, in uh, Los Angeles and Southern California, the political economy and culture of Southern California. It's just a it's just a dazzling thing to behold when you read that book. And that's how all of his books are. Um, and then, you know, he moves on to different interests, which we can get into more later in the conversation, uh, uh, the environment and the weather become this central preoccupation of his, but he, but he writes these incredibly, incredibly prescient and incredibly original books that, you know, going from his first book in the eighties to now, they just keep coming out and there's a, there's a ton of them and there's really nobody else like him on the left. And he's somebody who's worth engaging with. And one of the, one of the main arguments I make in the piece is that he's had this sobriety his whole life and he's not sought false solace anywhere. Um, And so when I read his most recent work and I detect a palpable shift in tone, a, a, a willingness on the part of Mike Davis for the very first time in Mike Davis's life to actually indicate that there may be some cause for hope in our politics 
and it's not you know he, there's it's full of the caveats and he says you know we need to do this this and this and it's just it's very tenuous that i have this sense of hope and he, he makes it very clear where he's where, you know, he's not overstating anything but nevertheless there is this sense that there are new political opportunities that are not fake fake sunbeams that we're you know trying to grab onto the this is real this is substantive there's actually cause for us to believe that the world could be different and more dignified and not burned to a crisp and so when mike davis says that i pay attention because i know that that is a hard one sense of optimism that's that is not that's no bullshit that is that's real uh and so if mike davis is is saying that then i'm like okay well maybe i can take seriously that like actually i too can have a sense of hope about where we're going yeah i mean i i just have to recall like i, I mentioned i've encountered his uh planet of slums as an undergrad i mean i'm you know that was 2000 it's going to date me to some people and, and make me seem young to others depending on which generation you are a listener uh but 2005 or thereabouts probably 2004 maybe encountering this book as an undergrad and i remember along it was in a globalization survey course and um right alongside of it we we watched what is it city of god <laughs> a, a documentary film about um you know, about, uh, was it, uh, you know, Brazilian yep. favelas and, uh, really dark shit and not a lot to be optimistic about in that moment. And, um, so, and if you read yeah, by the way, and contrast, I, right. To yeah. today, <laughs> and I, I read, I probably read planet of slums more recently than you have. It was just last year. I read it. And the, the end of planet of slums is one of the bleakest things I've ever read because you, you go through <laughs> planet of slums and it's all about the planet of slums that we live in yeah. uh, and how awful life is for literally billions of people on the planet. Yeah. And then the end of the book is like, he's sort of teasing out what the future is going to look like. And he's talking about Rand corporation studies of like mm. urban guerrilla warfare and how to do like counterinsurgency on the streets of like, you know, Rio favelas. And then, you know, that was at the time of the war in Iraq. So, you know, Fallujah. And it's just like, you know, th there's all this surplus humanity contained in these slums. They're going to be pissed. They're going to fight back. But pe people like the Rand Corporation are figuring out how to, you know, move down the crowded, dirty streets of Rio with their M16s out and, you know, and, and, and waste some favela dwellers. And he's like, this this is our future. It's pretty bleak. And so, like, that's that's where the guy was coming from, you know, at that historical moment at the height of the Iraq war. And now that's that's not what you get from reading him at all in his most recent books. Yeah, I, again, I've read that in one night, like the night before, probably pulled an all-nighter, read it right before class, and I vaguely do remember that piece and just wondering, just, I mean, because again, you're, you're in the midst of the rock war, you're in the midst of the kind of, yeah. I don't know, like a, uh, she's a, a techno, like, futurist, like, dystopianism, you know, like, uh, that, that was sort of, like, pervaded culture in, in that era, you know, post 9-11, and this kind of, like, weaponized, mechanized, heavily securitized, mm -hmm. You know, robots, you know, descending upon favelas and just wasting these insurgents, you know, um, that was the that was very much in the cultural imaginary and politically things have shifted. You see the pink tide in some of those yeah. places. You see the kind of rise of revolutionary politics and 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 what what do you I mean, so let's get to the thesis of the book, which was really devastating at the time. Which is that Marxist dictum of of, you know, there's that that's only the proletariat can save us is kind of fucked. When the the billions of people who occupy that position internationally are living in absolute fucking squalor, yeah. 
yeah. in these slums across the world. As he, uh, you know, the, the working class, as we have romanticized it, you know, did does not exist, uh, or the dis, dispossessed or whatever does not exist, you know, in these kind of um, more traditional kind of suburban unionized uh, places, but in the billions of people who occupy slums in places like Cairo and mm-hmm. uh, Lagos mm-hmm. and. Uh, and places in Brazil and the other places that he explores in my limited memory such that perhaps the Marxian project is really in trouble. Yes. Like not that it was wrong. I mean, and that, and that's also admirable too, that he never, he never lost the faith in like what Marx was saying. It was just that like the prospects of that happening were yes. diff- troubled. Like talk, talk to us about that. Yeah. That's something I, I realized in walking through that, that book that, yeah, it's exactly as you mentioned that the, the, the Marxian project, uh, it, that it sees the working class as this agent of change is in trouble because of the structural changes that have happened in, in recent decades. And, you know, in, in planet of slums, he's describing, uh, the, you know, the, the, the slums are expanding and yet there's no, it's not tied to any kind of economic development in any way. And so like more and more people are moving to the slums, but it's not like, you know, uh, late 19th or early 20th century where they're moving to the slums for these, you know, industrial jobs that exist there. Uh, the slums are expanding and yet there's still no jobs for anybody to have. And there is zero appetite on the part of capital and on political elites to change that. They're, they're, they're pretty fine. The, so these are just giant holding pens for a surplus humanity. And we don't, you know, they're not going to be given jobs. They're going to be given, you know, uh, U S Marines who, come down the street and shoot them and their children, you know, in the, at a time of when, when people get, you know, when, when the contradictions of that uh, situation, you know, blow up into, uh, in, into conflict in those places. Uh, so that's a, that's a bleak vision. Uh, but, uh, and it's, yeah, you're right to say that it's not a giving up on, on the proletariat as a, as a change agent. Um, but it's just sort of like asking some pretty tough questions about this thing that we believed our whole, those of us who are Marxists have believed, um, given th- how things have shifted. But then if you read old God's new enigmas, as I write in the review, mm-hmm. he's totally changed on that question. And he's, he's, again, he's not, He's not like rosy about anything. He's not saying like, actually, guys, proletariat's back, baby. Everything's <laughs> fine. Like people are still living in those slums. There's still no economic development. You know, people in Jakarta or wherever, are, are life is still very, very bleak for them. But he says uh, something like that, that they've not been, um, they've been demoted, but they haven't been fired, the, the proletariat, from, from its role to change the world. And he, he still holds out hope. Uh, that organized workers, whether it's you know logistics workers or healthcare workers or teachers, still can transform the world, and and that's what a big chunk of Old God's New Enigmas is about is sort of wrestling with that uh, with that question uh, of of that agency of workers. You know what 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 to what extent do they still uh, do they still hold this ability to change the world in the way that we all uh, want workers to be able to do? And so, as I said, he's he's uh, he's bullish on that. Uh, despite everything, and and it's a it's a marked shift from where he's been in the past. We are really at the center here. What you're talking about, what you're outlining, it occurs to me. It's like holy fuck, this is everything. This these are we're we're outlining the fault lines of not only the American but the the international left right now, especially like post Bernie, post Corbyn, post the populist wave. This is how the left kind of divides itself. Questions about you know. Let me backtrack. 
Something that's so interesting to me reading your review, it takes me back to that place when I first encountered these ideas in the early to mid-2000s, where, where conversations around surplus populations were everything. They were everywhere. The academic left. Yeah. Uh, you could not write a book without accounting for how this, you know, <laughs> how this modifies or uh, syncs up with or doesn't the question of surplus populations. And it's everywhere today, you know, from the way that people talk, write about race, the way people write about prisons, the way people write about, um, obviously, you know, international global affairs and slums and political economy. And, and um, you know, there are a lot of debates here. So the idea of a surplus population is the idea that, that there, these, are, these are classed or declassed, even declassed populations of people thrown out of the circuits of global capital. They do not, you know, they, they live uh, sort of in the informal sector and the black market or just like not at all, right? Um, and there are a lot of debates about are these declassed people? Are these people that were just actually maybe capitalism just never really incorporated mm. uh, the entirety of the globe in the way that we kind of thought it did? Maybe it did, but then it sort of, mod- you know, modifies and, 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 and throws off certain populations and, and, and leads to these like late Victorian holocausts that Mike Davis writes about. Um, it's a necessary function of the expansion and growth of now what we now experience as neoliberal globalization. You know, it wasn't just a, this conversation of surplus populations didn't just emerge from a, a, a deep sort of pessimism about our political prospects, like following you know, Clinton and W and all these other, you know, these ghouls that we were stuck with and seemed intractable in the moment. But it was also just like, the direction of global capitalism just seemed to be aligned against our project, against producing the grave diggers of the system in the way that, you know, the Marxian project understands it. But contrast that to today. Are the surplus populations, the declassed, the underclass, the the outliers of this system, are they going to save us? Are they going to need to rise up and self-organize? Or do we have new, newly threatened potentially declassed groups in society like teachers, nurses, um, other, you know, machinists who used to be among like the so-called labor aristocracy, downwardly mobile millennials <laughs> joining, flocking to DSA who might not have like these like mythical blue collar, you know, working class, you know, like cultural markers, you know, of, of yesteryear. But at the same time, they're fighting for, for a new world. What do you make of all of that? I mean, I just sort of, un- I, I think that, again, I think it's so important because it not only outlines kind of this transformation in Davis's way of looking at, you know, the world, uh, but it also lays out the fault lines of of all of the debates on the left right now. <laughs> it's fucking wild. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Adam. Um, <laughs> it's a big that's one. like the biggest question of them all. Well, I'll, I'll answer it this way. So, on you know, in some parts of the left, especially the academic left, I think people have, have seen that uh, you know, surplus humanity stuff, and they have said, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, or you know, to different extents of rightness, I guess I should say, they've seen that surplus population d- development and and said, well, this is where the action is at now, and it's going to be in the surplus populations. It's not going to be in like the classic industrial strikes. It's going to be in these surplus populations, uh, you know, like rioting in the streets. And Davis was sort of engaging with that in Planet of Slums. But the end of the book is it's pretty clear that he's not he's not bullish on the prospects of, of those surplus populations being able to overcome, 
you know, to, to through rioting or whatever, uh, uh, over to overcome what they're up against. I mean, they're just, they're just literally going to get slaughtered. So in that moment, he's like looking at the, he's, he's trying to be honest about the state of these surplus populations, but he's not uh, thinking that for, for structural reasons, they're going to be able to affect the kind of change that we need in the world. And, I still believe that today. I think it's important to read a book like Planet of Slums. It's important to understand that, like, yes, there are billions of people who are, like, being held in in giant pens uh, with tens of millions of other people who are like them, uh, and and they have very bleak prospects, and we should, we should not pretend that that's not the case. But, like, I mean, he's right. It's a, it, the, the proletariat has been demoted, but not fired. Like, we have seen in recent years, then this is part of his cause for optimism i think it's not just the bernie campaign it's things like the teacher strike wave you know that is an indication of like oh yeah organized workers still do hold the keys to transform this world and we we should not be giving up on them because we're we're reminded that like they unfortunately unlike some of these these surplus populations that are that are being held in these gigantic pens and, and and don't really have any like economic leverage to wield against the the masters of the universe. The or- organized working class still does, and to me, that's that's an argument for why, yeah, like therefore the the kind of coalition that you just mentioned, you know, the the D class A, you know, what DSA members or whatever should still see that as as a key place uh, of of where the action is at. It's still in engaging in those fights, like. For all that the world has changed, for all the economy has changed, the old tools are still going to get the job done. And, you know, maybe, you know, obviously it's trend, it's changed how we can engage in those fights and we're whatever, we'll, we'll make TikToks about it or <laughs> well, there's going to be different ways of organizing, but like that's still where the action is at. And I mean, this is huge for Jacob, and I'll say it. You don't have to co-sign this. You can you can tactfully uh, walk away from it. Just say that, Adam. Jesus, there he goes again. <laughs> I owe nobody nothing, baby. That's the, the, the joy of being an independent podcast in this day and age. But this is really at the epicenter of like all of the shit that gets tossed at Jacobin, isn't it, right? Because, oh, you Jacobinites worried about these nurses and these fucking D-class, you know, hippy-dippy PMC DSA types ignoring the struggles of the global international working class, you know, and, 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 you know, giving tacit support or worse to us imperialism. And, you know, I mean, this is, this is where it's at. And I don't mean to, I don't want to overblow. I don't want to over, you know, I don't want to give too much, (laughs) too much attention or or too much uh, credit to, to that fraction of the left. It doesn't really have any real presence, honestly, off of Twitter that I know of. I mean, that's, let's just put that out there. But, uh, but that this is where the fault lines are. So you're writing in about and around this in ways like you know maybe maybe I'm psychoanalyzing you, Micah. Maybe maybe there's some symptoms here of the kind of the 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 you know partisanship that that you're participating in as as the editor as a deputy editor of Jacobin and, and the kind of left project that you're representing here. This is fascinating stuff, man. This is really fascinating. We're, we're, uh, we're going in direction. I didn't know I was signing up for this when I agreed to be on this podcast. <laughs> Goddamn. <laughs> no, well, I can't speak for Jacobin, but I'll just say it to myself. The people want the real shit. We're in the post-Bernie <laughs> right, era. We right. gotta like we gotta we gotta strip it down. Yeah. Well, um, I won't speak for all of Jacobin. I'll just say sure. uh, uh, for myself, right. I care very deeply about US imperialism who, you know, the the victims of U.S. imperialism. I care very much about these surplus populations. I care about the billions of people who are written about in Planet of Slums. I do not want them 
to uh, to you know live in shit, to live in squalor and misery, um, in the way that Davis describes in Planet of Slum. That breaks my fucking heart every day to to consider that, to think about that, and because precisely because I'm so serious about trying to change that situation to try to ameliorate those conditions. I want to be completely sober about where the levers are of change, where where the levers are that we can change the situation. And to me, that still goes through the working class. It it go, you know, there's other things that need to be done too, but like the best way for us to change these miseries, like the best way to stop us imperialism is to organize the working class uh, because that's that, 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 that is how we stop uh, the U S imperial machine. And that's how we intervene in these slums. It's like, there's no way around it. Uh, you know, through except through uh, a working class that can get itself together and that can wage a fight and wage a fight not just for itself, but you know, just not you know, the teachers not, are not just fighting for their own pain benefits, but the teachers can fight for the entire working class. The teachers can take on you know an agenda that is a, a, a about you know liberating you know the project of labor is the the hope of the world. I mean that that is like what I firmly believe. You know, just today in the New York Times, there's an article. Or an interview, Dana Goldstein interviewed the Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot, who is a neoliberal Cretan, and uh, that we just avoided a potential strike in Chicago over school reopenings. And she's talking about the Chicago Teachers Union, and she's very astute. She's very correct. She was like, she's talking about her frustrations with the Chicago Teachers Union. She said, these people don't just care about their working conditions or uh, what's going on in their schools. These people want to run the school system. These people want to run this whole city. And it's like, no fucking shit. Yes, they do. <laughs> and they're going to fucking wrench this city out of your hands. And they are going to make it a city for the working class and not for these fucking, you know, hedge funds yeah. and real estate developers that you are. So I hope to God that they win because they actually have that vision of, of running the city for all of us and thank god for that we need one too many chicago teachers unions uh, across industries across geography across the world and that's how we're going to transform the world yeah what an endorsement r.i.p karen lewis by the way who was right. a former president uh, leader of that uh, caucus that ended up taking control over, over that union radically transforming it in the way that we've seen it she was obviously the the leader of the uh, organization you know like 12, 15 years ago when I first encountered it thereabouts, you know, when I was sort of a, a budding socialist and her, her kind of unique synthesis of that sort of labor project was, she's not the first person to ever do it, but it was a very unique synthesis that she was a part of. And so, yeah, just bears. And can I just say real quick, bears being said, um, yeah. uh, well, read all about it. Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity by Micah Utrecht, published by 2014. <laughs> we did a remembrance for Karen on the day that her death was announced that folks can watch on our YouTube channel uh, that I hosted with Alex Press. But the, the C, I, I, I harp on this because like the CTU model is one, it's it's like what, you know, it's what people like Davis are holding out hope for that like this, this is what it looks like to, you know, to, to, we, we the CTU is fighting for the surplus populations of Chicago. The CTU that is the vehicle through which 
not they're not just fighting for teachers they're not just fighting for students that they, they are carrying out when it, what it what it means when we say a, a, an agenda on behalf of the entire working class that means that they're that they are fighting for and alongside the representatives of you know uh black folks on the south side who have been unemployed you know where unemployment rates are 40 50 percent i mean like this this shows that it's it's a sort of like false dichotomy to be like well are we doing the working class or are we doing you know the excluded yeah. populations like yeah, 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 when yeah. you do unionism right you're fighting for everybody there's this there's this idea right like i mean and, and for decades this has been the case and i don't mean to lampoon anybody personally i swear to you i don't have anyone specific in mind when i say this the you know call off the the, the beef uh the beef train on twitter or whatever that's about to happen here in a minute after i uh, you know throw these words out but like it seems like there are two paths for leftists over the past couple of decades like one is like you take the quote like internationalist path and like i don't know you fucking move to guatemala and start a blog or something about international marxism or something right about internationalism <laughs> wherein like you know you you uh you you smear all of the uh you know labor activists in the US as like PMC like imperialists and all the rest of it or you know you get like a, a staffer job like in a union somewhere and you know i don't know you you uh whatever right like yeah. it, it and i think like you know what we're talking about is like what, what if you didn't have to do what if you had to get in that dichotomy right what if what if we didn't know what hey micah what if we didn't though <laughs> you know what if we just didn't yeah. what if we thought about it and then it, we just didn't <laughs> you know? So anyway, I, I love this. This is a, this is the this is classic DPS. In so far as like you know, we're talking about the essay without talking about the essay, but it, we're, we're talking about very real fault lines and rifts that come up. And I, I appreciate you sort of um, expounding on that. This is the kind of project ahead, isn't it? In that the belief in the working class, the belief that the working class project will absolutely and inevitably impact positively the, the the billions of people trapped in favelas across and slums across the, the world like we have to believe that right um i don't know what i don't know what other path we have at this point and we have to fight <laughs> you know? to ensure that we're doing unionism in the way that actually does care about the people in the favelas and the unemployed right. black people on the south side like we you know right. th that requires a a, that doesn't happen automatically. It's very right, difficult right, right, right. to do unionism in that way, but like mm -hmm. it can happen. We we've seen much more easy to give into the kind of nationalist social democratic project that saw like you know the pillaging of like Algeria under the French system or something, right? Like you know, it's much easier to give into that. Of course, you know, it's difficult to to do a, a principled. Um, anti-imperial sort of labor centered socialist approach. But uh, I think that's what we're, what we're after. That's what we're after. Let's dive into some of uh, Mike's maybe even more pressing works dealing with, Oh, I don't know. The fucking pandemic seems like he kind of predicted that didn't he a little bit. Tell us about that. That's the book. I have not read that one. Uh, and I seems like I should have, uh, but yeah, Davis called it. So, Actually, before I answer that question, I should talk about this other aspect of Davis's work, which we haven't talked about at all so far. I mean, on the one hand, there's yeah. the, you know, the, his work on the working class, which if you're a socialist, you obviously have to reckon with that. But then the other thing that is unique about him is his focus on the weather and the environment. And I say this broadly speaking, I mean, none of his books are really about climate change. Climate change sometimes gets mentioned. But they're not actually about climate change. I mean, we all know climate change, you know, impending slash present disaster, apocalypse, et cetera, et cetera. But in his work, especially starting with his third book, Ecology of Fear, he is talking about the weather as a kind of like autonomous agent of social change in its own right. 
what Mike Davis cares about are, are workers in the weather. And, the, and I say the weather, broadly speaking, it, like the ecology. And so his third book, Ecology of Fear, and I had a, I written a whole section that ended up getting cut about Ecology of Fear because he wrote City of Courts, this book about L.A., and it becomes this surprise smash hit, and all of a sudden he becomes this celebrity. And it, it, it came before the Rodney King riots in L.A., and he had described this kind of pressure cooker atmosphere in Los Angeles, and a lot of people he, were- He's like, like the guy who, like, I mean, at that moment, just to give people a sense of his celebrity and, like, where he comes, like, he was the guy who, like, I don't know, like- got all the you know press because he had written a book about like the housing collapse like a year before it happened right exactly right like you know and so like he he was seen in during the urban riots in the 90s is like suddenly this guy who got plucked up and like like thrust into the mainstream and like you know going to fucking probably I'm, I'm assuming like going to like you know parties in the hills with like you know progressive celebrities oh, yeah. who are concerned about the fate of he got a the genius grant. Issues that he's talking about. He got fucking MacArthur genius grant. Like this is a. I mean, people. You know, again, like I don't expect um, people, anybody in their twenties and thirties, sort of understand. And rem- even I was a child, small child, you know, during those days. But that that was the kind of like yeah. celebrity that he enjoyed uh, in those days. Kind of public intellectual function. Um, and yeah. if if that was if if you accomplished that and you were real hype about. Oh, you know, look, mom, we made it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a genius grant recipient now. Yeah. Like yeah. there's, there are ways to go about your career that would then make yeah. sense to continue exactly. being the genius uh, and, and to sort of like pimp your, your newfound uh, public intellectual fame. That's what's so laudable, laudable about this man. He exactly. didn't like lean into it and start exactly. a fucking foundation. Exactly. You or, know, like he was like, ah, fuck it. I think I'm gonna go write about something else. Exactly. Exactly. And he actually, yeah. apparently um, there's a very old, not very, uh, there's an old Adam Schatz profile of him from 1997 that's very much worth reading, uh, where he talks about this in the profile. He's like, you know, a- after the riots, he had a contract to write a book about the L.A. riots, which, of course, everybody wanted to talk about. And that would have been the smart career move for Mike Davis would have been to write the L.A. riots book. And he actually started it. Um, but he says in that profile that he couldn't continue because he developed all these relationships with, among other people, gang members in Los Angeles. And he was like, it's just too depressing. I mean, it's like he was he he developed these intimate personal connections with these people. And uh, he couldn't like he couldn't marinate in that environment because he, he he knew the people he would have had to been writing about. And it was just too much. So he he threw his life into like helping negotiate truces between gang members in L.A. And I have a whole section in the piece about that. But Mm-hmm. Um, but he 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 eschewed the thing that it would have been the smart career move to do. Instead, he writes this book, Ecology of Fear, which is a bonkers book. People should read this book. It's so nuts. Like it's all about the ecology of Southern California and uh, about how the ecology of Southern California is essentially its own kind of autonomous agent. And he says it's in it, he, what what I realized in reading that book and the rest of his work is that like he you know he's a socialist, so he's like looking for the workers to change the world. And he's like, oh shit, they're actually fucked. They're not going to change the world anytime soon, unfortunately. So then he looks at the weather and he sees something of himself and his politics in the weather. He says that the Southern California ecology is a revolutionary, not reformist landscape. Uh, And he has a very famous chapter in the book about uh, the case for letting Malibu burn. It's all about Malibu and the firescapes uh, of, of Malibu, this home of, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the country, you know, uh, entertainment execs and movie stars and stuff. And yet fire is just constantly ripping through Malibu because of the unique ecology of Malibu. And it's pretty clear when you're reading it, 
who Mike Davis is writing for in the contest between these rich motherfuckers with their giant compounds on Malibu and the forest fires that sweep through Malibu on a regular basis. It's he's rooting for the fires, baby. He wants he wants to smoke yeah. the rich people out because he's like and and but it's because of this thing that is this thread through all of his work, uh, which is that uh, you, you can't. It's he's not an eco modernist. He doesn't believe that the environment can like be conquered. He's like, what, what, what? The the ecology that we live under, it, it has its own motives, its own rhythms, and it it will, it doesn't give a fuck what you want to do to it. Um, and the whole thing that's wrong with capitalism is that capitalism is literally incapable of uh you know taking those those uh that reality into consideration and then you know building a society accordingly that like lives in respect and of awe and fear of these independent forces of ecology um so uh he he's he he's like this this weather shit is nothing to fuck with and like we should be honest about it and we should like just recognize that and uh, there's brilliant parts of the book where he's talking about what the effects are in southern california of uh, not respecting the the autonomous power of of the ecology and it you know whether it's earthquakes or wildfires or even like hilarious sections where he's talking about like i think like cougars like coming in from the mountains and like terrorizing these suburban you know just built tracts that yeah. sort of incur too far into the natural wilderness of southern california or squirrels carrying bubonic plague that are like attacking <laughs> children in in places where they're probably shouldn't yeah, be kids are getting built. bit and whatnot there <laughs> are like little uh like plague outbreaks from yeah. uh wild animals and shit yeah. uh, in those days and and i mean this is this real kind of um intense engagement with like the yeah the 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 sort of um i mean what others of course let's let's place this in its context in this moment you have like john bellamy foster and the people who would sort of kick off a certain wing of the eco-socialist movement in that in that time period saying this was like they'd come up with like an additional like limit of of capitalism one that marks either didn't think deeply enough or didn't get a chance to write about or didn't think about at all depending on who you ask which is that you know there's this ecological limitation this contradiction of of capitalism and its relationship or lack thereof with ecology that is also like a the fundamental perhaps grave digger of capitalist development and as he's writing in that context and I don't want to speak to like how he he engages with that what he thinks about it of course I've had Lee Phillips on the show a guy who's written for Jacobin a lot and, and always really ruffles a lot of feathers and I have I suggest that Lee would have some oh yeah some really needless at least interesting like dialogue with Mike yes. about about his conception of ecology as agent but it is certainly one way that ecologists, I don't mean like Marxists and kind of dilettantes like me, uh, think about ecology. I mean like actual ecologists think about you know, like viruses. You know, I've, I've read fascinating, uh, I mean, this is, we should transition to and in, in also in his uh, prediction of, of these, yeah. these sort of late capitalist pandemics, which were inevitable in his, in his view. Viruses having their own yes. sort of intelligence about them, right? Yeah. And and I think it's actually fruitful to think that way. Of course, it has limits, and we should think about the the human basis of all of this, which is Lee Phillips's sort of um, yeah. overall conceit. I think I don't want to speak for the man, uh, yeah. but but uh, but that's to say that there's still fruitful ways that we can approach viruses as agent, ecology as agent. 
um, in a way to think about how we therefore need to build rationally systems to engage with it because it's going li- to it's going to outlive us that's for goddamn sure all of these viruses will be around long after we've swall- been swallowed by the sun <laughs> likely and, and certainly ecology so how did he conceptualize these these sort of late capitalist pandemics well in the same way that he would talk about like the ecology of southern california and make these arguments that you know we we cannot conquer these forces you know we'll, we'll lose in that battle and so we need to figure out how to engage with them in a way that is sort of smart and, and like lives in awe of them and like gives gives those forces their space. I mean, he, he thinks a similar thing about pandemics. He, he wrote this book, uh, The Monster at Our Door, uh, which was re-released last year called The Monster Enters. Uh, the, the monster has crossed through the doorframe and is here now. Um, and yeah, I mean, you read it and you're like, what, why? It, this book existed 15 years ago. We we didn't have to go through this. <laughs> People like Mike Davis were sounding the alarm that that there were these uh, these pandemics that were waiting to be like unleashed at any moment, and you know that the the conditions of a kind of globalized industrial capitalism actually are such that they aid the spread of these viruses. And you know, as a short side, I mean, it's it's very. It, funny and I guess predictable that Trump of course tried to make like the pin the blame for the virus on China for his obvious xenophobic and racist reasons but you know when you think about did it start in China like maybe because just that's because the international capital flows like involves China and so it's like yeah. It, it, yeah. It, that doesn't mean you don't blame China for that because the whole the whole reason that they're you know doing stuff in China is because uh, of global like that's just where what the space that China occupies in the global capitalist yeah. system it's not like oh well it was China that did it it's like no it's the global capitalist system that did it um, to add to that right the WHO just did a fact finding mission in Wuhan to try to figure out the origins and the, and the, the you know the, and, and what they're looking at one of the possibilities of course is always subject to change one of the possibilities is frozen meat that would then be sent out across the globe so yes <laughs> global capital uh like commodity chains is at the is at the heart of this at 100 you know not china yeah like whatever the fuck that would mean yeah so so he's writing in that book uh i mean as in all of his books as in ecology of fear as in late victorian holocausts about el nino weather systems mm-hmm. Um, he, like the science is not just, a, he's not just like, oh yeah, there's science. Like he actually does a real deep dive into the, the science of uh, viruses like the coronavirus and, you know, wh- where they come from, how they mutate, how they evolve and how that, what that has to do with the global capitalist economic system that we live under. And, you know, he's, he's warning in the book that, you know, this, the monster is at the door is what he was saying in 2005 <laughs> And, you know, I remember years ago looking through Mike Davis's back catalog and seeing books like City of Quartz and Prisons of the American Dream. And then I see this book, The Monster at Our Door, about avian flu. And I remember there was like a picture, like a very dramatic picture of a chicken on the front of the book. And I was like what is this? This guy seems like a crank. Like, what is he talking about? Like, It had a very, like, uh, outbreak. You know, remember yeah, the yeah, outbreak yeah, yeah. with Ebola? It was, like, in the same era. I read that book, too. I, to be honest, I'm pretty sure I skimmed it. But I remember it had... It, I mean, in hindsight, it has, like, a... Um, Almost like a Melvillian kind of Moby right. Dick kind of like a deep, like you know, like Melville goes off on like a hundred page, like you know, yeah. uh, you know, tirade on like the finer parts of like whaling yeah. or whatever. 
right? And you're like, and that's what Davis does here. Yeah. I remember finding like skimming that book as like a lazy, like undiagnosed ADD, like you know, like fuck up, like just really intolerable because of those. Uh, but but yeah, that's that's the, that's how he writes. It's interesting. Well, and uh, you know, I guess full disclosure. Another another disclosure I will make of a breaking news I'll make on this podcast. I skimmed parts of that book because the science is so right. he's so yeah. in depth about it. I'm just like totally okay, dude. I get it. Like I get what you're doing here. I'm not gonna understand this shit. So I'm gonna yeah. try to understand the finer points of virus uh, transmission and evolution. But but I've yeah. never read Moby Dick. I can imagine I'd skim right. like the, yeah. uh, the 50 pages <laughs> about the different kinds of knots that you exactly. can use yeah, in your the, whaling. Yeah, the, yeah. The, how the how the blubber gets separated in the bowels of the ship or whatever. No job. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, and that is that is central to a lot of his work. Is like it, it reflects that spirit that he has of like he takes these forces very seriously. He thinks they need to be understood on their own terms. He himself lives in awe of how viruses mutate and spread across the world. You know, he himself lives in awe of the, you know, the fires that break out in Malibu. Like he, and, and that's what he's trying to get the rest of us to do is sort of live in awe of it. And again, to get back to his, his Marxism, I mean, he's just like, capitalism is incapable of of doing that and and that is what part of what his vision of a of a decent socialist society is is one that 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 says like we cannot conquer this thing this thing is bigger than us and clearly we have been taught that lesson over the last year around the world uh you know the a global pandemic has kicked all of our asses uh, and killed millions of people and it's a stark reminder of no matter how advanced of a capitalist system that we have, no matter what kind of technological developments that we've that we've come up with, all of which are good, obviously, uh, but it's nothing in comparison to uh, to these independent forces of nature that can totally whip our asses when they decide to. And 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 damn it, Mike, I'm going to do it again. I'm back on my bullshit. If this doesn't outline another rift in the American left, I don't know what does. And and. Um, there was a recent split, a, a catalyst that some listeners will know about and some listeners will not. And I'm not here to take sides. Uh, splits happen. People disagree, especially scholars disagree about the, the direction of publications and where we need to go as a left and what what kind of left we need to build. And so this isn't about thumbing the scale in either direction or saying so and so was right, so and so was wrong. But it's well known that uh, a bunch of like sort of um, – Senior, very respected scholars, Vivek Chibber and Mike Davis and Bob Brenner, just socialist luminaries, really, um, just don't see eye to eye when it came to certain, you know, the prospects of the Bernie moment and and political strategic kind of, um, you know, um, projects. And, and infamously at this point now in time, the editorial board at Catalyst split on some of those questions. And Mike Davis found himself... Um, sort of opposed to the direction of Catalyst in one way, shape, or, or form or the other. I'm not certainly going to ask you to comment on that professionally or take sides or any of the rest of it. I think that both sides, um, I mean, let let all of the journals flourish. Let, let a million mm-hmm. journals, flowers bloom, and, and, and we'll all be better for it. Um, I would rather these socialist luminaries be arguing with one another so that we can benefit from the process of those arguments um, rather than just sort of like keeping it all to themselves, right? Just for the sake of of of, of all remaining sort of, um, you know, I don't know, on side or what have you. Um, but that's just to say that, you know, I can, I'm imagining this debate between Lee Phillips and Mike Davis playing out mm-hmm. in my head. 
with respect to this stuff. Now, pardon Lee. I know Lee's a DPS listener. I consider him a friend. He's a hell of a guy, and, and I'll have him back on to, to try to clarify and tell me how wrong I was about what he would say or do here in a moment. But if he'll, if he'll just pardon me for a moment, and I know he's such a nice guy, he will. I can imagine. I can the inner, my inner Lee Phillips. We should all have an inner. inner yeah, it's true. By the way, we should all have an inner Lee Phillips, and we should all have an inner Mike Davis. Yeah, Lee Thanks. Lee Phillips sits on this shoulder, but he's you know I got other other forces on this shoulder too. I can't yeah. always listen to Lee Phillips. I'm sorry, Lee. Right. I can't. <laughs> yeah, you know, the same thing about planning, right? I've got I've got a Sam Gendon over here, yeah. and I've got a, a Lee Phillips and Michal Rosworski over there, and we should we should all. I mean, this is the dialect. This is the dialectic, right? Uh, the, the the dialectic that Senator Kennedy from uh, Louisiana is of. <laughs> I love the, the dialectic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said, I'm of the dialectic, by the way. <laughs> Hillbilly, Hillbilly here to translate it. He says, I'm of the dialectic. Uh, it sounds like love, but it's of. It's uh, but so he's even. It's even deeper than love. He is <laughs> the dialectic. <laughs> it's from whence he comes. It's from whence he comes. It's from where he shall return yeah. one day when his when he sheds his mortal coil. <laughs> anyway, anyway, to, to inject some humor on like a, a possible touchy yeah, subject yeah, yeah. that I'm talking about an editorial rift, you know, over some like socialist luminaries, whatever. Um, you know, Lee Phillips might say, yes, um, capitalist development has absolutely put uh, people, productive forces, and and dangerous <laughs> things like viruses um, and, 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 and increased exponentially the propensity for these viruses to mutate, throwing humans and animals and with commercial farming and population density into just um, disarray. This, nat- this natural balance that we've enjoyed as a species over millennia has been just completely thrown out of balance, which will necessarily inevitably throw up these plagues. Um, my, my, my Lee Phillips on one shoulder says, ah, yes, but we should harness the power of science and, and uh, you know, with public, public medicine and um, and overcome these challenges because we have the tool. We have the tools. We can build it. Um and and then and then Mike Davis is over here saying that's hubris, right? Again, I'm 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 shoving my hands up the respective asses of both of these fine gentlemen and and and, and uh, working their mouths as puppet as a puppeteer. <laughs> we we should uh, the hubris of that remark is you know astonishing because we cannot you know we need to redirect and revolutionize our productive forces such that it's in they are in harmony with these four systems that are far bigger and you know than we could ever control. So there's a there's a there's almost a reform and of course Lee would never categorize himself as a reform reformist. I mean that would be bizarre. Uh, but but even within the kind of more like revolutionary currents of Marxism, there's a reform versus revolution kind of debate playing out here, isn't it? Am I, am I wildly off base here and in, in, in trying to find these fault lines? You're not off base in fact I wanted to come on your show to talk about this because I knew that you would ask me questions like this that nobody else would ask. <laughs> Other people Good. would be like, oh, it's interesting Good. that Mike Davis thinks this about ecological limits. So, oh, that's that's cool and interesting, I guess. And you are teasing out the fact that this is a it is, it is a disagreement with like some of the other arguments that people like Lee are uh, making this more sort of eco-modernist uh, argument. And, um, and it is one of the most important questions of our time, right? Like there's yeah. at a time of climate change. Uh, there, there are a few more important questions than this one. Um, you know, we, we should, we should be careful not to sort of caricaturize Davis's argument because he would of course never say like, we should not seek technological advancements to uh like medicare for all would not be good or whatever of course like of course right yeah yeah 
Um, but you know, I don't. But but you're right to to identify that as the sort of like. I mean, the basic difference is like, can I mean? If, I think if you ask Lee, Lee would say like he he believes in like conquering nature, or at least that that should be the orientation is like mm-hmm. to believe we can do it, to try our hardest to conquer it. Um, we we will probably won't ever be able to actually conquer, but like that's our that should be our sort of like. Mo that should be how we approach this question is like we're gonna. It's almost an epistemological uh, point for Lee because even I think that he would that and I'm, again, but Lee beat me up in the comments or whatever have it. We'll have you on the show and clarify. But to, it's, it, nature only has meaning insofar as it's mediated by and through the perspective yes, and needs. That's a of good, humans. very good point. Yes, right. Yeah, and Mike which, does I mean, not believe that. Mike, no, Mike's no. like. The this this thing is its own thing, and it 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 deserves to be its own thing, and it should be allowed yeah. to do its own thing. And like, and he doesn't think that like he, he doesn't think his own you know that, that he and we are more important than what it is uh, doing, or at the very least that like you have to. He, as I said, he just wants to. He he believes in respecting it. He's just like it's over there doing its own yeah. thing, and I am not going to, tr- to incur too far into it um and lee would lee would totally disagree with that i think and and, and this isn't a lee versus mike uh, debate again as i'm saying this is a rift on the american left yeah. right as exemplified by the, the the split and the editorial team at catalyst which i hope will like i said i hope will produce more projects that are more you know that are put placed in conversation with one another but this is you know this is a rift on the american left about what to do in the midst of and post bernie Right. This is a rift. So this it's, it's almost like a reform versus revolution, which is a really fucking impoverished and stupid way to look at it. I wish we I wish I was like, you know, smart enough to come up with a better framing and maybe someone else will be. But it is, though, right, with even within the revolutionary uh, left, there's a fucking quasi reform versus revolution playing out in our midst Um and trying to figure out how to understand that, what to do about it is going to be really critical, I think, moving forward. And Mike Davis is one of the most like uh, fierce, you know, um, proponents of of one side of that that battle. And that's kind of what we're we're seeing here in his approach to ecology. Yeah. And at the very least, even if I don't fully agree with him on every point that he makes, I mean, it's like just like it's worth having the Lee Phillips on the one shoulder. It's also worth right. like having the Mike Davis on the show. Maybe that's a cop out answer, but like the truth is I don't actually know <laughs> what I fully think about these, these questions of ecology. I mean, like I, I, I come from, you know, as, as we've discussed, I believe on the show before I, I am uh, the son of a pastor uh, the son of a uh, like a Christian existentialist who it likes to yep. talk about the sort of folly of human efforts to uh, to conquer our world and how that's always a doomed project. Um, and I take that very seriously. Um, on the other hand, when I you know somebody like Lee's arguments are important because uh, I don't know what the political implications of the Mike Davis type argument or, or, or uh, an emphasis on our, uh, the limits about which, you know, to which we are capable of, of changing the world. I mean, that very easily can go for at least some people, not Mike himself, but for some people in very bizarre directions, like we're going to have to do population control. We're going to have to ration out resources. I mean, it's just like with Lee, at least with his project, he is saying like, no, we're not going to, nobody's going to be like left out from uh, what we're doing here. We're, we're not going to have to, you know, decide who's going to, you know, have to walk the plank in order to keep the planet. Like he refuses to believe that that has to be a decision that we make, that we sort of consign some huge portion of humanity. You know, you, we, th- th- these people get the resources, but these people don't. I mean, uh, he's like, we're going to make resources for everybody. And, you know, that is a, 
that comes from Lee's belief that we don't have to make that kind of choice. And so, you know, I prefer, I, I'd rather not make anybody walk the plank so that we get to keep the, the planet. It's very disturbing to think about where that political argument can go if, if we buy it. Yeah. So. Hair shirts are itchy too, by the way. <laughs> just, just, just to really, if, if we, if I haven't uh, like sufficiently impugned my adversaries, <laughs> no, I tease, I kid. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, I mean, Mike, Mike, but, but it's very much in keeping with the this the narrative that you set out here about his work that he is. Um, I don't know if bullish and bear. I mean, I, I recognize that you probably see the limits of, of of bullish versus bearish as any as any dichotomy. Yeah. Like we were just talking about the limits of reform and revolution. And I mean, it's, you know, but you have to like fucking dichotomies, man. You, you know, you got to give way to them because they're dis- they, they're helpful, but they're always limited. Yeah. Um, and 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 even in his bullishness, he's still bearish because he's excited about. It seems like he's excited about you know having read um, old gods and new enigmas. He's excited about some of these prospects. But he's not giving way, um, not giving any ground on on what needs to happen if if we're going to succeed. Like these big, vast structural change with these historic agents, like same as it ever was with this Marxian stuff, you know. And um, the idea that somehow the game has changed is an illusion that the left has given way to far too often. And you know he, him being a sixty, a project, a product of the '60s generation, which like tried to reimagine revolutionary, the revolutionary subject over and over and over again, right? Um, falling like prey to that, you know, impulse. Um, it's refreshing that Davis is just like, nope, same as it ever was. You know, same as it ever was. I um, I almost at the very end when the piece was you know being edited and it was like in the proof stage. Uh, Mike published this thing for New Left Review for their new blog sidecar called Hopes for 2021, which the first sentence of uh, of it is, someone wrote me asking what were my hopes for 2021. And I read this and I was like, oh shit, he's actually speaking directly to what my argument in this piece about him is. And I wasn't sure if I should insert, insert this in the last minute. And I was sort of respond to it and i was i was going back and forth with the editor about it i decided not to not to do it because the book the, the piece is dealing with his books and this is just sort of like an 800 word blog post but um he is saying in the piece i mean he's like really taking uh bernie and dsa to task for not mobilizing like national mobilizations against trump and his coronavirus response he's like disappointed he, he's somebody who, who emphasizes very much of the self-activity of the working class has to be crucial to what we're what we're building here if we're going to change the world and he's like there's not enough of that going on and so he lays out all of these things um that are uh they, that we're fucking up that we're not doing right in order to um to change the world in the way that we want to so yeah, that's that that's the sort of like it's not just pure bullishness. I mean, he's he's as ever just as sober as he's always been uh, about what the prospects for political transformation are, and yet he is. I mean, even even in that piece, the the my uh, David Marcus pointed this out to me. He's like, well, yeah, this this blog post comes off as a little, it's a little bit of a douse of cold water on the argument that you're making in the piece. But also, you should keep in mind that he's saying like we could be doing national mobilizations against Trump's mm-hmm. coronavirus response. We could DSA could be doing X, Y, and Z. And mm-hmm. uh, the very fact that he considers this uh, as a possibility is in fact a reflection of the newly uh, optimistic mood that Mike Davis is in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even the, yeah, the thought that, you know, this is a possibility, this is a lost, a road not taken. It's a possibility right. that we have yeah, in our, in our grips. 
Yeah, good point. You know, and um, words to contend with. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, I, I'll have to read over that and see what, see what I think. Any, uh, well, I'm just trying to think. You know, there's so much in this piece. So much in his oeuvre. I always fuck that up. My French is terrible. Uh, what would you recommend? The listeners are here. They're like, ah, oh, this Mike Davis guy seems interesting. I don't know why Adam keeps telling us about like old socialists and why we should care about them. <laughs> you know, I just did that for four episodes with Leo Panich and all the rest of it. I do though. I mean, there's something that is lost here. And um, somebody I saw, somebody tweeted about this the other day, which reminded me of like, you know, when he said one of the joys of being in DSA is being around some of these sixties radicals yeah. that haven't lost the faith and le- learning from that. And then, you know, one of the things that I've benefited from immensely when I was in the ISO, which is an organization that have a lot of crit- criticisms of it's now defunct so it doesn't matter one way or the other but um is, is sitting down in bars in dc and new york city and chicago and, and then in toronto when i was outside of the iso with these old socialists just i just fucking just i mean i I'd, I'd sort of like stick it through the meeting like which is like boring like like arguing about dumb resolutions that didn't mean anything like just so i could make it out to the bar after the meeting Right. Because I wanted to, because that's what, to me, that's, that's what, that's what mattered. I wanted to hear these stories about the nineties, the eighties, the seventies, even earlier from these, you know, kind of seasoned socialists. And it makes me sad that we don't have that as much anymore. And like you and I, in many instances are like the old heads, you know, like, uh, for these, these, these socialists, you know, and which is wild to me. Um, but, uh, that's kind of why I'm, I'm maybe leaning into this, maybe, Maybe even subconsciously leaning into this post Bernie to try to to keep this uh, project open. Yeah, what, what should people read here? What, what's how, how's the way into this massive body of work? Well, at the risk of plugging myself a little too much, I mean, the best intro to his body of work is the thing I just wrote. So I think people should read that before anything else. I mean, it it will lay out sure. it'll lay out his whole career for you. And then maybe pick and choose which which interests you the most. I mean, that could be a way to do this, right? Like people all constantly messaging me, "What should I read? What should I read? What should I read?" And I say, like, oh, "You should read what you should read what excites you." Ultimately, yeah, right. Like, yeah. And um, and you know, not everybody will be able to slog through all of these Mike Davis books. I mean, there will th- different things about each one of them will excite them or will exhaust them and mean that they don't get to the end. Um, the most readable Mike Davis book for sure, which we haven't even talked about actually, uh, because we've been talking about so much other important shit, uh, is his most recent one, Set the Night on Fire, uh, this mm. project that he's been working on for uh, a long time. And it, you know, people should not be afraid of the fact that it is this brick of a book. I mean, it's huge, but as I write in the piece, the pages really fly by. And actually, as a little digression, um, you know, he's been working on this book since at least 2003. It's this longstanding thing. He's been working on it since the period where he wrote a book like Planet of Slums, where he clearly feels very pessimistic about the, the prospects for social change happening. And yet he's been, you know, for almost two decades working on Set the Night on Fire, which is like a pretty, in terms of like what the book is, it's just like a standard history of the 60s. And it's like, it covers everything cool that happened in Los Angeles in the 1960s. And it's just like, you know, here, here's the cool shit that happened. And like you, even though the the battles that are being described in it are often lost by these 60s radicals, like Mike Davis is really excited to talk about them. Mike Davis and John Wiener, his co-author. And so, I mean, even that, like the fact that he was working on it through that period of pessimism shows you that he really had this, this sort of like thread of, of the optimism at our prospects to change the world has been had present for him in a long time. It, in some ways, it's kind of a reflection of his prescience as a thinker in that, like, 
he just understood that it was important to tell the story about what happened in LA in the sixties, even at a time when like the mood was the exact opposite when we were, you know, invading Iraq and then everything was all so bleak. So anyway, that's a little digression. I, that book is, is, is certainly the most readable book. Uh, folks will find that it, it, it's worth the, the, it's worth getting your arm a little tired holding this giant uh, hardcover version of this book. Um, and then, uh, you know, Planet of Slums is, as you said, 200 pages. It is, I think there's a blurb on the front of it that, that describes reading it as like having anvil blows run uh, rain down on you, which is true. Like you will not emerge from that book feeling particularly great about the state of the world, but. It's not a, it's not a pick me up. It's not a pick me up. He is not a pick me up guy, except for in his most recent stuff. Um, and, you know, City of Courts and, and uh, Ecology of Fear, as I said, are just like wildly original. Like you'll, you will not find too many books that are like those books. And so, you know, reading it, you just like, you know, no choice but to stand Mike Davis for uh, writing this wild book like this. Um, and of course, I, I don't even touch in the, in the, in the, my piece about his, you know, vast essay uh, you know, he's written so many critical essays over the years. So uh, there's 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 more than enough for anybody to dip their toe into. Certainly, any DPS listener to dip their toe into, uh, and and find something that this guy has written about that they will uh, find uh, useful to engage with. And then I guess uh, the other the other the, the point about him uh, to make, and the, the point that I, one of the points I'm trying to make in the in the piece, which is doesn't come through explicitly in his books, unless you read 11 of them like I did, is the fact that this is a guy who has, you know, he began his writing career during Ronald Reagan's presidency, uh, you know, this post-60s and, and early 70s moment when things got really, really bleak for the left. And um, his writing reflects the bleakness. Uh, and yet, this guy stuck through uh, the lean years of the left. He has never for a second wavered. All right, listener, I'm breaking down the fourth wall here. The Zoom recording stopped at this point, unfortunately. So Micah did not get to finish his brilliant point about Mike Davis's oeuvre. God, that, I, still saw, I still can't say that word. Anybody who wants to coach me in French, just enough so I can say oeuvre. You know, so it rolls off the tongue a little bit better. It doesn't sound like I'm about to vomit. <laughs> Hit me up. Anyway, the Zoom recording crapped out at that time, which is kind of a bummer. I've been using Zoom to record interviews for the past year now, like we're a year in the, into the um, pandemic. And I was using Skype prior to that. I switched to Zoom out of its like sheer popularity. But anyway, the Zoom recording crapped out. So that's that. You guys are going to miss, unfortunately, some more insights. I did have a quick rebuttal to what Micah said, and I think it's important. So I'm going to go ahead and include that here, and then we'll wrap up the show after that. So you all stay tuned. Yeah, we're all going through this. I mean, we will finish the way we started. It's like, you know, this post-Bernie moment is um, is going to be difficult for a lot of us, but it's also going to be really important and maybe even hell, productive. Maybe we might, you know, I don't know, you know, um, I often think to myself, how how long can I keep plugging out episodes? How can I stay on this hamster wheel? Is what does it look like to spend fifty years on the left? You know, like Leo Panitch did, and, and Sam Gendon has, and and, and nearly that. Uh, you know, from Mike Davis, or actually at this point, yeah, I mean, hell, he's hell, he's in his mid seventies in the same way uh, as as the likes of of that generation. You know, the 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 Reeds, Adolf, and uh, the others, the other folks that I've mentioned. Um, you know, we don't know shit. <laughs> compared to these guys agree or disagree with whatever op-ed they just put out and whatever outlet 
agree or disagree, we don't know shit in comparison in the grand scheme of like the way this all works as a lifetime. Um, hopefully one day, you know, uh, God's willing, uh, we will. We'll get there. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a slog. Uh, and, and, and Davis's work is not always optimistic because, you know, that's life is not always optimistic in that way. And uh, but you know what is optimistic? Uh, your book, Bigger Than Bernie, written with uh, co-author Megan Day. <laughs> and that concludes today's unfortunately truncated episode of DPS. What we missed at the end there it was another uh, five to ten minutes of this interview. Micah was prompted by me, of course, to talk about his new updated revised version of his book, Bigger Than Bernie, co-written, of course, with Megan Day. And so you guys missed a little bit of a chat about the complexities of writing about Bernie optimism following the latest, uh, you know, crash of the Bernie wave. I don't want to call it a crash. That's far too histrionic. But, you know, waves ebb and flow. They wax, you know, moons wax and wane. Seasons come and go. You know, all, all things must fall away and, to, and, and transform into something new. You know, this is, the, this is the tiny dialectic, folks. I'm doing the little things with my fingers, the little tiny dialectic. And, you know, Micah had some interesting words about that. But you're going to miss them because Zoom fucked up the recording. But uh, have no fear. I'm going to be having Micah and Megan, hopefully on the show here in a couple of months time when that new revised version of their book finally lands. We're going to be hearing a lot more from them. So thanks a lot. Zoom incorporated, whoever you are, I don't know, whatever. Zoom has gotten us through the pandemic. It's kept some of us sane. Uh, we, we love to hate it. We hate to love it, but it is what it is. I will try to have a backup recording next time so it doesn't happen again, but on to brighter territory. Uh, we've got a lot of really Excellent shows coming up here over the next couple of weeks. I was a little sidetracked in my recording and release schedule by the untimely and tragic passing of my friend and comrade Ed Rooksby. Yeah, I still miss the guy uh, unbelievably. He and I had become quite close intellectually speaking over the past few years. Even when we went months without talking, you know, we were co-travelers, co-thinkers. And um, I know he thought a great deal about this show. And the fact that, you know, in my lowest times as a podcast host, when I'm thinking to myself, like, why am I doing this? I just, people just shit post me on Twitter all day. Like, you know, the Patreon is dwindling. You know, there's so many different left projects to support financially. Like the left is getting stretched thin when it comes to their ability to support these projects. Like we're falling prey to the free market and all of the bullshit that that entails. Like why can't socialists like coordinate inside the socialist media ecosystem like ah it's so much work and editing and producing and like how am i gonna make money i don't have time for a real job outside of this and you know like so much bullshit that you have to deal with uh year after year and the fact that somebody like ed rooksby believed in this project and thought that it was important the fact that leo panich believed in this project and thought it was important the fact that michael brooks fuck it believed that this project was important you know, it really, it, it's kept me going over the years. And so, um, I don't know. I just wanted to sort of, um, throw that out there. Lest anybody wonder like why it is that I get so bummed and, and decide to go off on these like hyper emotional tirades and, and give eulogies and, and dedicate entire series to like, you know, dearly departed socialists. That's why 
because these people have uh, literally been like literally literal <laughs> been the reason why this show has has continued i think they can they've bolstered and enabled this project over the long haul but enough out of me i was so i was so that's to say that when ed passed you know just like when leo passed just like when michael passed it's really really hard really hard to kind of move on but we're going to move on nonetheless I have some really amazing episodes that I have banked over the past couple of weeks. I've got one with Adam Hilton about the the history, the legacy, the future, the complexity of the Democratic Party. I've got one with Eric Blanc about the so-called dirty break and some historical legacies. I've got one with a member of the Collective Power Network, CPN, which is a caucus inside of DSA, talking about their proposal for working inside the Democratic Party as uh, socialists and some critiques with the so-called dirty break. And this is going to kick off the sort of pre-discussion period of the upcoming DSA National Convention, which is going to dictate policy and organizational strategy for the organization over the coming two years. So I've got a lot more than that, too. I banked an excellent episode with Matt Carp, which is going to be coming out very soon. Lots of stuff. I got more interviews than, than I have time to edit them at this time. So don't think that the lull in episodes, the lull in DPS that has accrued over the past couple of months due to a series of tragedies is going to continue for much longer. I'm newly energized, politically speaking, by some of the prospects, some of our ability to like peel back and have some important conversations about our future. Sometimes when your nose is too close to the, the grindstone, if you will, you ignore, you know, more kind of foundational, fundamental, organizational, structural problems, like things that are poorly theorized, things that were like blind spots in our assumptions, right? And now we have a period, a political period, I think where we are going to be able to really dig in and dive in and determine for ourselves what kind of left, what kind of socialist left project we're going to be embarking upon over the next 10 to 20 years. And that's my jam, y'all. You guys know that. That's my happy place. <laughs> I guess, you know, uh, something for everybody. Some people uh, are, uh, love knocking on doors and canvassing. I've, I, I've done that and I like it. Uh, some people like to be in the thick of a union strategy session you know, for a strike or leading up to a strike. And I've done that and I enjoy it, but I, my favorite thing in the world is to peel back and have some kind of like macro strategic structural organizational conversations. And we're going to be doing a lot of that over the coming months. So I am pumped enough out of me. You guys, this extended send off has gone too long, but just wanted to update you on what was going on with the program and I know the diehards are the ones that are still listening because this interview with Micah went well over an hour and a half and I am now pushing the two hour mark. So I'll cut it there. You all enjoy the rest of your week and we'll see you soon.